They called us monsters, so monsters we became. We are monsters out of the closet. I'm Nicole. And I'm Shreya. One of my favorite pieces of Halloween trivia is about its history, specifically why so many people were fearful at this time of year. In much of the Northern Hemisphere, the moon is closest to Earth in October, meaning that its eerie, serene glow is much, much brighter. The added light would elongate and distort shadows. At the swirling, chilly winds of autumn, and the human imagination ran wild with the ideas of specters and demons. That's why I love Halloween. It marks a time where nature and human imagination conspire to create stories from the shadows. For our first episode, an extended Halloween special, we bring you these shadow stories at the crossroads of nature, humanity, and imagination. Our first piece, The Great God Pan, is an opera from contemporary composer Ross Crane. Inspired by the 1890 Penny Dreadful of the same name, Crean adapted the supernatural gothic story to raise questions about gender and sexuality. The full recording was released this August, and the live world premiere will be in Chicago on March 10, 2018. We have been given permission to air some excerpts from the opera, which will be presented as interludes within this episode. We begin with a woman haunted by the strange force she encounters in the woods. This is In the Garden from the Great God Pan. Up next, we have another story and another encounter with a mysterious and powerful entity. Our next story, Click, checks many of our favorite boxes, 
werewolves and witches, girlfriends and ghastly creatures, the piece was written by Lucian Clark and read by Tara Rundin. It was first published in 2016 on our frequent collaborator and partner website, Gender Terror. Click. 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 She wrapped her nails on the table, sounding like a small dog walking across a tile floor. This analogy wasn't entirely incorrect, though the words were not small nor dog, in the man's best friend sense, anyway. Lenore sighed and with a loud huff, rested her head in her other hand and continued her clicking on the kitchen table. What to do, what to do. The rain echoed her rhythm on the table, a slow and heavy sort of rain, the type that soaks you the minute you walk out the door with fat, heavy drops. She couldn't go for a run. Her girlfriend hated the way she smelled when she went for a run in the rain. Her girlfriend was a cat person, being a witch and all. But of course, she fell for the werewolf. Go figure. Anna would shoo Lenore out of the house some nights until she dried out and this rain didn't seem to want to stop. So that was out of the question. What was a bored werewolf to do? Anna was out. She was out often. Lenore didn't have to ask where she went anyway. She always came back smelling like spice and sweat. Anna said it was her coven. She never smelled like sex or lust, so Lenore didn't pry much more into it. No reason. You can't really hide cheating from a werewolf. People joke about people stinking of guilt and other women, which isn't exactly incorrect, but Lenore doubted they could actually smell it like her. With a groan of the chair, Lenore rose her massive frame and decided to see what mischief she could get into in her own house. Why not explore Anna's study? Maybe she could set up a nice surprise for her, or get some ideas for the soon-coming holidays. Whatever Lenore could get into in the study was infinitely more interesting than watching water falling from the sky. The stairs creaked as she climbed them, protesting their years of continued use. It was an old house, and old houses complain like old people. They ache and they creak. Lenore's grandmother often compared herself to this very house before she passed. Living in the same place for that long, the house becomes a part of you, an extension of you. The house breathes and sounds like its owner. Lenore shuddered, thinking of the house as a living being, something old and foreboding. But she quickly pushed the idea aside. The upstairs was small. Simple. Three bedrooms, one converted to Anna's study, one Anna and her own, and the other a guest room. A small half-bathroom with a standing shower made up the remainder of the upstairs. The house wasn't large, but for two people, it was enough. Anna got by with her flower shop over in the city. Lenore worked as a bouncer at a nightclub. A pretty stereotypical profession for a werewolf, but it fit. Lenore wasn't exactly a people person, and her large size intimidated more than enough people. Plus, it was a mundane bar, so no worries about prying other werewolves apart as they fought over who knows what. Werewolves tended to be... temperamental, to put it lightly. Lenore gently knocked on the door to Anna's study. Anna was out, but Lenore did it out of habit and half out of concern that if she didn't, the wreath on the door would curse her. Her girlfriend wasn't that type of witch, but rather safe than sorry. She may be rather impervious to knife wounds, being punched, and other physical attacks, but the spiritual? Not so much. Lenora ran her hand over the wreath of dried plants and herbs, remembering at one time Anna had described to her every plant and its purpose on the wreath. She'd forgotten, of course, never seeing a use for them when she was the house's built-in self-defense system. She opened the door, listening to it creak and groan and thinking of her grandmother once again. A small sigh escaped her lips. It had been years now since she had passed, but living in her old house kept her memory alive. 
maybe too alive sometimes for Lenore. She often thought of selling the place and moving somewhere out west with Anna. She and Anna had even fought over it. In the end, Anna's sense always won over Lenore's wanderlust. Maybe eventually Lenore would find a pack and a sense of belonging in this town. Maybe not. She had Anna, and that was enough for her at the moment. Anna's study had a faint glow to it. On her desk sat a small terrarium with some sort of glowing fungus. Another thing Anna had told her about that she forgot over time. The dull green glow gave the room an eerie appeal, coaxing Lenore's curiosity out more. She had explored the books in the room before, questioned about this or that, but never dug deeper. Tonight, on this dreary, damp night, Lenore was going to explore Anna's study. It was a challenge that made Lenore's hair stand on end. She was excited, and she could feel it tingling across her body. First, she looked through the bookshelf, her nose guiding her across the dusty old tomes. There was nothing exceptional or new. Books on different plants, herbs, spell books, books passed down from Anna's own grandmother and mother, some books in languages that Lenore nor Anna could read, but she still kept them. For witches, books are everything. It contains everything they need, knowledge of hundreds of years passed down. Werewolves had stuck to oral history for the most part, and even that was shaky and up to the teller to edit as they saw fit. The books were a bust. Lenore moved to the desk, sniffing and poking around Anna's papers. She rustled and shuffled them about, accidentally tipping over a vial. The top popped off, and Lenore scrambled to collect the contents back in, but there was nothing. Probably a charm of some sort Anna was working on. The bottle was freezing, as if it had been dipped in ice. It was cold enough to send pinpricks of pain through her hand. In the glow of the room, the glass reflected small symbols, lovingly and delicately etched on the surface. It was beautiful. Lenore ran her thumb over the carvings, inspecting them in the dull light. Low-light vision. One of the many werewolf perks. Of course, not so much when you caught the people banging in the barely-lit bathrooms of the clubs. Why anyone would fuck in the shit-covered walls of that place was beyond her. She continued her search, moving to sit in Anna's chair. The chair protested, the arms pressing against her in an uncomfortable fashion. The chair was not meant to hold her bulk. It was definitely meant for someone half Lenore's size, like its owner. She dug through the cabinets, ruffled through the papers. Nothing. There was nothing new or exciting to be found. She'd have to find another way to pass her time. Lenore turned her attention to the glowing green fungus on the desk. If only she could remember its name. A loud bang startled Lenore from her pondering as the door to the room flew open. Lenore shook her head, giving a rough chuckle. Draft. Simple as that. She rose from Anna's chair, tapping on the glass of the glowing mushroom's container. She'd have to ask Anna about this later. Maybe she could help Anna out with some of the basics of her craft. It would kill time and give her something to do when it was rainy and she didn't want to deal with Anna complaining about wet dog smell. The hallway was dark. She could have sworn she left the light on. She reached for the switch. Click. Nothing. Click, click. Still nothing. A busted bulb? Lenore growled in annoyance, going back down to the tall pantry where they kept all batteries, light bulbs, and other household odds and ends. It wouldn't open. She pulled harder. Still nothing. Lenore dragged her hand down her face and shook her head. You've got to be fucking kidding me, she growled, pulling hard enough on the cabinet that it would have fallen over in any ordinary circumstance. It still didn't budge. Fine that way. She kicked the bottom of the pantry and went back to the kitchen table, glowering outside the window. That's when she saw it. A small flicker in the glass of the door. It looked like a face or something. An intruder? Lenore spun in her seat, staring into the emptiness of the room. That's when she noticed it. It wasn't a person, though. Standing in the living room wasn't a person. At least, 
She didn't think so. Its body was hazy, dark, there was no clear outline. The air around it looked like it was warping, like someone sees it on an extremely hot summer day, and yet the room was losing every bit of warmth. Lenore could see her breath, and even that seemed to be being pulled towards the creature that looked like a human-shaped black hole. Click. 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 It clicked as it moved. Not the click of old joints or even the click of small dog nails on the floor. The clicking was something heavy, something sharp. Lenore was frozen. What was this thing? It radiated something otherworldly. It felt ancient. It did not belong here. Lenore's heart was in her throat. She couldn't breathe. It was pulling everything of her towards it as it approached. It felt like her very essence was being pulled from her body. Her air was being pulled from her lungs. She couldn't move. Click. 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 It reached out. Not hands. Claws. They touched her cheek, feeling like dry ice and burning just the same. She didn't know how much longer she could take it. Then she heard it. The car door slamming shut, the faint jingle of keys. Soon, soon she knew she would be safe. The creature, the shadow, whatever it was, seemed to know this. It moved from Lenora, sinking low to the floor, leaving dark spots on the floor and rug cold burns. Even as it streaked its way back upstairs towards the study, it made the same noise. Click. 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 The gentle click of the lock as Anna unlocked the door. She would have a lot of explaining to do when Anna opened that door. Anna would have a lot of explaining to do as well. However, before Anna opened the door, all Lenore could focus on was the smell of an all-too-familiar spice lingering in the still, frigid air. Questions linger in many of these pieces. Next, a mysterious and powerful woman casts a spell over an unlucky man. Is her power malevolent? or just misunderstood? That is the question that permeates. An, an artist meets his maker. From Ross Crean's opera, The Great God Pan.
Our next story takes us back to the woods, but sometimes the unsettling and unknown lies not in the woods, but in our own homes. Inspired by the American Gothic tradition, our next piece, The Harvest, explores the threshold between childhood and adulthood. The story was written by producer Nicole Callant and read by Rachel Shaw. Little Evelyn Marquez swung the rope in sweeping arcs as her friend Clarissa Robertson leaped over the cord. Browning leaves crackled under shoes. Winds swept the reaching tree branches in a slow, shuddering wave. It was a chilly afternoon, cold enough to sink into your bones, and night was beginning to creep into the cracks of the wooded surroundings. Faster, Eve, Clarissa shrieked between a grin. Her dark curls bounced with each jump. Eve spun the rope faster. Their laughter rang in the clearing. A crow's sharp cawing joined in the laughter. The harvest is coming soon. The voice came from the eldest of the children watching Eve and Clarissa from the edge of the clearing. Clarissa turned in mid-jump to face her old friend. Hello, Jennifer. Eve slowed the rope's rotation. Is it that time again? Yes. The harvest is coming. You must return to the village. The elders are waiting. The other children, Frida and Ernest, said nothing, their eyes unblinking, deeply focused on the younger girls as they ended their game and moved to untie the rope from where it was tied to a tree. The crow cawed again. The sound of flapping wings followed as it flew off towards this small town. The girls looked up from the loop of rope they were coiling and just caught the last of the older children as they passed through the old growths of trees towards the village. Clarissa raced after the older group and vanished behind the shroud of shadowed wood. Eve dropped the rope and quickly dashed into the thick trees after her friend. Clarissa! She snatched her friend's arm tightly so as not to get separated in the narrow paths between the trees and their grasping branches. Eve shut her eyes and let her friend guide her out of the woods, her heart pounding as she felt a thick branch gently flex and grip her shoulder, trailing through her long, dark hair. The air seemed to ebb and still in the dense wood, but a shrill whistling, like the whine from a sawmill, could be heard above from the gusts still whipping across the tops of the trees. Both girls had to hold their breaths, finally gasping for air as they broke through the tree line into Farmer Arthur Cross's field. The older children were nowhere in sight. Their teeth chattered as they continued toward town, following the unmistakable spire of the council hall. It stood like a needle piercing the blood-red dusk sky. They did not meet the eyes of the hayman on his eternal patch. The hayman's stuffed arms dropped and swayed without direction in the swirling winds, his painted eyes stalking them as they carefully treaded on the edge of Farmer Cross's field of crops. Why didn't Jennifer wait for us? Clarissa's voice was quiet, barely a whisper. If Eve had heard her dear friend over the roar of the winds, she could not have put words to the answer. Both knew, without knowing, that Jennifer and the other older children were different. Since last year's harvest, the older children no longer joined in the games they had once loved so much. The town and the surrounding woods no longer echoed with the laughter of before. Instead, the older children were quiet and watchful, their eyes glassy and bulbous, their slithery movements as delicate and obscure as smoke from dying embers. In the rare instances the older children spoke, their mouths would creak, halfway between the sound of a heavy tree beginning to snap and the sound of a faraway scream. Out of the corner of the young girl's eyes, they could see people converging from all directions towards the council hall. Like ants dotting the crimson horizon, they filed neatly to the marble building and jet-black wooden doors. The setting sun was dropping past the edge of sight, the last fiery tendrils of daylight blocked by the massive edifice, casting the assembled crowd into darkness. The gatekeeper stood placidly where the double doors met, his gaze impassive and terrible, his many teeth glinting despite being shrouded in shadow. His fingers wriggled impatiently as his face flickered and distorted. 
His cloak was darker than dark, and the crowd avoided looking directly at the shawl, lest they fall into its void. A murder of crows was perched along the edge of the roof and atop the spire, peering down with button eyes and sharp beaks. One crow called out, echoed shortly after it by a few more crying creatures, until the whole murder was cawing in unison. The gatekeeper's mouth curled into a mirthless grin. The harvest is upon us. The adults and older children towering around even Clarissa hummed in agreement. The gatekeeper dragged the door open, just wide enough for a single person to enter the pitch black within. The door screeched, slowly and painfully. Almost in response, the cries of infants and children left behind in their homes were carried on the icy wind, making the two girls, the youngest in the group, shiver. The gatekeeper directed his gaze to the townspeople, who avoided meeting those dripping eyes as they formed a neat line and filed in slowly. Each person approached the door, waiting a few moments before proceeding, one after another. Even Clarissa clasped hands tightly, shuffling closer to the ajar door. The last two left outside, the girls stood alone in the dark, trembling before the door. Eve felt Clarissa's hand lose grip on her own. Then Eve knew she was alone. She knew better than to call out to her friend. Eve had to be brave during the harvest. Long moments passed. The infants that had been crying out earlier were silent now. The winds had calmed somewhat, but was not quite satisfied. While she could no longer see the gatekeeper, she knew he was still there, now part of the shadows hanging down over everything. She felt a sudden pull, like the very building was sucking her into its maw. Eve stumbled into an empty room. The only light came from the far side of the council hall, a dim blue glow, amorphous and ambiguous, hovering above the ground. In the gloom, Eve could make out the elders, their faces garish and haunting. She took her place before their bench and bowed her head in deference. What is your name, child? The elder in the centre croaked. His dark face oozed and dripped like melting wax. He held a pen that, much like his face, was seeping a viscous and putrid liquid from where his hand was poised above an enormous bound journal. Eve, she gulped. Your true name, the elder on the far right snapped and rattled as cracks spread across her skin, splitting her hard flesh open like clay. Evelyn Marquez. The elder with a strange blank face that seemed devoid of any features growled low and harshly at her. The elder beside him on the left glared at Eve, her skin so pale that the young girl could see the elder's bones within empty flesh. The skeletal elder warbled suspiciously. This one is young. She is no younger than the other. The elder beside the scribe spoke through the faces of every single person Eve had known. The first elder insisted. What is your true name? Are you not hungry? Eve stammered. I, I'm not hungry. I just want to be with Clarissa. I'm scared. Don't be afraid. Eve spun around at the sound of Clarissa's voice to see the once empty room now filled with the townspeople who had entered before her, now sitting utterly motionless on benches. Her heart had leapt at the sound of her dear friend, but now froze at the sight of Clarissa's blank eyes and the passive line of her mouth. The harvest is here. Give us your true name. Eve's eyes bulged and teared up, a strange sensation ripping through her. Her blood seemed to accelerate through her veins. Her breath came in sharp gasps. The room gyrated between the ardent elders in the ravenous town. Eve felt a huge weight seemingly drop, enveloping her. Her head was spinning and her body was quaking, her skin too tight to contain her. She was ancient. She felt her mouth open. And Eve heard herself say her name. Into the Woods is a poem that follows the classic story archetype of the Odyssey, the journey and the return. 
However, as we find in this piece, not everyone who wanders into the woods finds their way out. The author of this poem will remain anonymous. The reader is producer Shriya Venkatesh. Into the woods, the birds coo, the grass is green. Touch the branches, you stroll deep in the woods. More dirt than grass, branches twist and turn. Funny, you feel like they reach for you. You walk, damp settles into your bones, breath mists in front of you, deeper still, faster and faster you walk, funny, you've not heard anything for a while, sudden stop, clearing, bright little house, chimney smoking merrily, ground lush with grass, a brook babbled earlier, funny, you thought it came this way, Knock on the white door, so pristine, your hand leaves a mark. Little old man potters over, so happy, you see, no one's visited in a long, long time. Settle in, I'll put on a kettle, you sit. Wind whistles vaguely, whispers surround you, cracks in the cup, cracks in the facade, Bitter tea deep in the woods, clearing, little house, white door, your mark is gone deep in the woods. Some things are only truly gone when they are forgotten. Our final piece explores what happens to the things that are gone, but cannot be forgotten. This is The Ritual, written by Sarah Schaff and read by Max George from the podcast Scream Kings. It was not the closet in his room that gave Reggie any trouble. Nor did it trouble him tonight as he sat up in bed at three in the morning, suddenly awake. He had the vague notion that he had just been having a nightmare, but was unable to recollect what it had been about. This was not unusual, it had grown to a near nightly occurrence. But like most kids, Reggie was able to take this in stride. All he knew right now was that he wanted his parents. He tried to pull their names and faces from the cold quicksand of sleep. He needed his parents. And he knew he knew that as sure as he knew what it felt like to be really hungry or really need to use the bathroom. He needed to ask them about those ants in the jungle. Was that it? They didn't come in to check on him anymore. He supposed he was too old for that now. He swung his legs over the side of the bed and then stopped. Reggie had never been particularly worried about anything under the bed either, because there was only about three inches between the slat of his bed frame and the floor. Sometimes his toy cars would get stuck under there and he'd have to probe around with the broom from the kitchen in order to coax them back out. Reggie wasn't afraid of zombies, but he knew they weren't real, unless you were an, an ant in the jungle somewhere. When he was six, on his very last day of school, his friend Alex had told them about ants that became infected by spores, which took control of their bodies, then grew through their exoskeletons in thin, white stalks. The whole thing scared him a little, but he hadn't said so. He had believed it, though. Alex loved to read about animals, especially bugs. In any case, Reggie was fairly sure that the woods near his house were not the same as a jungle, and the tiny pepper-black ants that ran in scuttling rivulets along the forest floor were not the same kind of ants which became zombies. Still, he had meant to ask his mother about it after school, but she'd been in a foul mood, which had come off her like a smell as soon as he hopped into the back seat. And he had been silent the entire car ride home, faded blue backpack on his lap between him and her misery. Inside their house, his mom had made him his usual after-school snack, a 
a bologna and cheese sandwich, and a pack of fruit snacks. And he had taken his pills and sat down in front of the TV in the living room to watch cartoons. And he'd simply forgotten all about it. But the closet in his hallway. Reggie suspected the only thing that had given him the creeps worse than the hallway closet was seeing the animal that had been run over. It had been the night that car had gotten a flat tire on the drive home back from the hospital. Reggie had gotten out of the car to look at the tire with his parents. Tired and needing to pee a little, he had been interested and rather nervous at the cars whizzing past them, though it was late enough that the traffic was fairly thin and the novelty of watching them passed in a few minutes. They had pulled over on a wide gravelly shoulder and Reggie decided to take an unhurried lap around the car because he was starting to get bored. His parents had hoisted the car into a lean and were dissembling the flat in a process that normally would have been interesting to Reggie had it not nearly been 10 o'clock at night or about two hours past his usual bedtime. Jordan, the elder of the two siblings, was using the light on his phone to help them change the tire. It was dark, but the headlights of the car were still on and Reggie started his circuit from the car's left rear left tire and made it to the driver's passenger side before he spotted something just outside the dusty halo of the twin beams. An irregular shape halfway out from under the undulating metal rail that divided the shoulder of the highway from an expanse of unlit darkness inhabited from the sound of it by a vast empire of crickets. Reggie had not been afraid. Not yet but something a subtle smell maybe or just the low cunning of instinct kept him from walking closer. Eventually he registered the dry sound of footsteps over gravel, but the thing that leapt out in the flood of light from his brother's phone surprised him, and that surprise had turned the dizzying suddenness to revulsion and then a flood of terror that had made his guts feel crawly and loose at the same time. Ugh, what the hell? Jordan had said, taking a few tentative steps toward the very dead animal. A dog, maybe? To Reggie, it looked more like the picture of wolves he'd seen in one of Alex's books, but it was hard to tell. Its visible eye had burst from its socket, and Reggie could see the clotted purple rope of intestines pouring out from its mangled body. The animal lay on its side, though its neck had been broken so badly that the grinning head was entirely upside down. Forehead pressed into the gravel. Its front legs were splayed, outstretched in Reggie's direction, but its back was utterly broken, and its hindquarters were thrown parallel in the opposite direction. The fur that wasn't stiff and black with drying blood was brown, or maybe gray. Reggie had made a sound that wasn't quite a moan and wasn't quite a sob, and had backed up so quickly he tripped and sat down hard. He wondered vaguely if he was going to puke. Then Jordan had been there, telling him it was fine. It was just fine, just don't look, and pulling him up and back around the trunk of the car towards their parents. When they'd gotten home a little after eleven, his eyes still red and puffy from crying, Reggie was a little afraid that he would have a nightmare about the animal. And for some time he'd laid there in distress, fresh tears flowing silently into the crevice of his ears. But eventually the exhaustion had pulled him under into a dreamless sleep. A month later the nightmares began. Reggie could never remember them, but would wake up scared and sticky feeling, knowing he needed his parents. And then the nightly ritual would begin. The closet guarded the threshold between the kid's space and the parents' room. Because the hallway was fairly narrow, the closet had a pocket door which slid back to reveal an array of winter jackets and coats, a pile of old toys and clothes that Reggie's parents still meant to take to Goodwill, some folded blankets, old bedsheets, and the household's collective comforters, in the warmer seasons anyway. The hallway closet had an old blank smell to Reggie. It was different from the rest of the house. The way the bathroom had shared with his older brother and sister sometimes smelled different, the air a little thicker, laden, yellow-ish. Just weird. But Reggie suspected that the bathroom smelled that way because a lot of people used it, and the closet smelled different because no one did. The hallway closet was for things that could be forgotten for a while, or maybe for good. 
and Reggie was afraid of what happened to things in the dark while they were waiting to be remembered. It was Reggie's birthday tomorrow, and he pondered this too as he sat there in the dark, stealing himself to make the dash from his room to his parents' room down the end of the hall. The seed of terror had begun to warm its cold roots into his brain while he'd been thinking about the animal. Maybe when he opened the door to his room, the animal would be there, half in and half out of the closet. Front limbs splayed across his path, its burst stomach spilling its shiny purple guts over the carpet. He would smell it. The rancid, gassy smell of it that he hadn't experienced that night with the flat, but somehow knew. Just knew somehow. And then the animal would raise its head and the foggy yellow eye, which had been blown from its socket by the weight of the car that had killed it. Yes, it would It would stare at him. Yes, it would from that pinkish twist of meat that still tied that eye to the socket. And then Reggie wondered if he would stop being afraid of the closet when he was eight. Maybe not immediately on his birthday. He figured that would be too much to ask. But maybe in a few weeks or something. Maybe eight was the magic number. It gave him a, a little bit of hope. Big kids weren't afraid of the closet. His brother certainly wasn't. Reggie knew he was a big boy. His parents called him that. The nurse that would check on him on Mondays and Fridays sometimes called him that all the time, too. Big boy was not the same as being a big kid, like his brother, who was 15 now. And Reggie wondered when exactly that change would occur. Maybe it was going to be on his eighth birthday. He had now made it to the door of his bedroom and placed one hand on the knob, turned it, opened the door just a crack. Without knowing it, he was holding his breath, but he deflated with a small whimper when he saw the door to the hallway closet was open. His mom always made sure it was closed, but just like that, it was open, just a little bit, but he could see the thin, vertical bars of blackness, so much deeper than the usual night darkness that settled around the house when all the lights were off. He watched it. There was no animal. Of course there was no animal. The animal was off rotting to the bone somewhere on the highway. Still. Reggie listened for the dusty, rumbling sound it made when it was pulled open. Nothing. Reggie's eyes flickered over to the closed door of his parents' room. He knew that he couldn't run. If he ran, then the thing in the closet would know, and it would chase him. The way dogs couldn't help chase things that ran. And that's why they sometimes chase dumb things like cars, and the thing in the closet would get him. Reggie knew because it was faster and it was hungry. Hungry for little boys and big boys and maybe not big kids because big kids didn't run. He couldn't yell either because then Jordan might wake up and be angry at him. And then in the morning he'd tease him for acting so babyish. And they'd probably do it even though it would be his birthday. He wondered if they did come out and yell at him, if he'd even be able to recognize him. The endless night made everything so strange. But maybe eight was the lucky number after all. Reggie stepped out of the room, the hair on his arm standing straight up. His scalp prickled, soft coils of black hair that had only just started to grow back, seeming to stand right on end. He put his hand up to the side of his face so he didn't have to look at the closet. That didn't make him feel any better. Maybe it was better to look at it. Maybe it was better to be able to see the animal coming, because, oh yes, the animal was going to come, wasn't it? Could he hear it in there? Could he hear the wet grind of its bones as it came for him, part animated corpse of some lonely, unlucky beast, part rotting cloth that had been shoved deep into the closet? Just how deep was it, anyway? How deep was it, really? And forgotten years ago crawling with moths and worms. Yes, he could. The air was sick with it. But he was almost past. What was worse, to have your back to it? Reggie's heart was loping along in his chest. Maybe it was better to scream, even if Jordan called him a baby tomorrow, morning before school. Maybe that was better than getting got by the animal. Lucky number eight. Come on, big guy. Isn't that you? He tiptoed forward. 
Then he heard it. Just a little. Maybe he had even been imagining it. But no. His heart, which had been jackrabbiting only a moment before, seemed to stop entirely for a full second. The door. But he was going to be eight tomorrow. Tonight he supposed to be different. His stopped heart plummeted. Reggie turned and ran. I can't. I'm staying late tonight because of play rehearsal, remember? Jordan was looking pointedly at his assemblage of binders and loose-leaf papers in the kitchen table. It was Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, a first for his school and an unusual one, Jordan thought, though he was definitely excited for next semester's project. No exit. It's his birthday. You know he'll want you here. Mom, there's two days before the opening night. I think he'd understand. Jordan said, cramming the last two binders into the already overstuffed backpack. There was a sudden tearing noise, almost like a fart, and Jordan swore. Briefly, his eyes met his mother's disapproving glance. Use your old one. I think it's in the hallway closet, his mother said. Jordan retrieved the backpack and began the process of transferring the binders and books from his own, which now sported a large hole where the green nylon body had separated from the black canvas bottom. As he re-entered the kitchen, he tried not to notice the small box on the counter that no doubt contained a small birthday cake chocolate, probably chocolate, with a candle displaying a decorative number eight, cheerfully skewering the thick skin of icing on top. Jordan hated the too sweetness of the icing. It was cloying and fake and made his tongue feel weird. Smells weird in there, he said, trying to do something with the glass silence in the kitchen. Reggie hated that closet. God knows why, his mom said after a moment. Are you sure you don't want a slice of cake? You can take it for lunch or for rehearsals. Jordan shouldered the backpack silent. If he opened his mouth, he would tell her how he didn't want the cake because he didn't like the cake. He never liked the cake. He hated the fucking cake, and especially that shitty fake chocolate icing that had been Reggie's favorite. Jordan had known when he'd woke up this morning known it for an entire week leading up to that, in fact. What waited for them in the kitchen, the yearly ritual, a resurrection. He had thought sullishly on his way to the bedroom, rubbing the crust of sleep from his eyes, and now he thought he'd been just about right on the nose with that one. Three years now. Couldn't that be enough? That night Jordan lay sleepless in his bed and listened to the house settle its old sockets. He was held in place by the light dread that he associated strongly with childhood. He was not sure where the feeling came from, but sleep stole over him slowly, in degrees. He was hearing the occasional car rumble past on the thoroughfare a block away, the analog click of his alarm clock, and maybe, underneath it all, as he traversed the foggy gap between wakefulness and slumber, what might have been the nervous fall of light footsteps outside his room trying, once again, to reach the door at the end of the hallway. On that spine-tingling note, we have reached the end. But don't worry, like Reggie, we'll be back again soon. Thank you to Ross, Lucian, Sarah, and our other writers for their submissions. Thanks also to Tara, Rachel, and Max for reading and recording these selections, and to Dylan Triplett for the visual arts submission, which can be found on our website and Tumblr. Special appreciation goes to Gender Terror, Scream Queens, and Scream Kings for their collaboration and support. To find out more about these pieces, our artists, and our readers, check out our website, monstersoutofthecloset.com. We are always looking for volunteer readers and for submissions of fiction, poetry, music, and more. You can learn more about submissions on our website under the Submit tab. Our next episode, Roots, will air in late November. But in the meantime, stay tuned for special bonus content from this premiere. 
Nicole and I would lastly like to thank you for listening. Without you, we would be voices lost in the howling winds of the podcast world. So, really, thank you.